You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Turn to God's Word. We're um, looking at 2 Corinthians, and this morning we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, in the background to this letter is that there had been a dispute a conflict within the fellowship, particularly uh, as regards Paul, and much of this letter is written seeking to help resolve that conflict. Um, Paul had written them an earlier letter, and the Corinthian church was basically ignoring the problem that happened in their fellowship, and one of the things that it's very important for us to realize is ignoring a problem doesn't make it go away. And the Corinthian church had basically done that. Paul challenged them on it. He wasn't prepared to accept it. He wrote a letter of rebuke, and then he sent someone called Titus to make sure that they followed through on it. And in this context, Paul had been really worried both about the reception that Titus would get and also that his own letter, which was quite sharp and strong, uh, would have been misconstrued. So, uh, we've come on to this part where he's pleaded with them and he's now pleading with them to uh, be reconciled to him, uh, not to be yoked together with unbelievers as we saw last week, but to purify ourselves. And in verse 2 of chapter 7, he says this, make room for us in your hearts. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I've said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I'm greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. What I want to look at this morning is something that directly applies to us because all of us will have conflicts. And it's how we deal with those conflicts, not just within the church, but in our own homes and in our work situations and in other contexts. So we can take, we, we can understand what is being said here and you can apply it in different ways. And it may be that you're not a believer and you're wondering how all this comes into being. How do you deal with conflict resolution? Well, um, you can hold a service of reconciliation as a proposal that that should happen if uh, after the referendum debate that we're all going to be f- fighting each other so much about the result that we need to be reconciled to one another. And you can understand the thinking behind that. But just kind of holding a service, I don't think it reconciles people. So we're going to look at what that is. And it's all to do with our heart, how we feel about things. Well, how we think, how we feel. And the first thing I want to look at is what I would call the narrow heart. In this first verse, Paul says what he does not have. He's referring in particular to church leaders and pastors, to elders and so on, but I think it can be applied to us all. And there are three things he identifies in verse 2. First of all, he says, we've wronged no one. There's a wrong kind of authoritarianism. There is a, a, a fierceness which is entirely out of place. If you have any kind of authority, if you're a church leader, 
you're a teacher, you're husband, you're a mother, you're a boss, you're a politician, you have some degree of authority. And that authority can be misused. And when it's misused, it does so much harm. Paul says we, we, we haven't wronged anyone. We haven't used our authority to knock people down. We haven't abused anyone. It's one of the saddest things in our culture that the vast majority of child abuse occurs within the home. That's horrendous. But that's parents, men and women, taking advantage of the fact that they are in authority and using that to exploit somebody. You uh, may be in a work situation where your boss, because they are your boss, they think that they, they have the authority and the right to and the power to wrong you. That can happen in a church scenario as well. It can happen in a marriage relationship. It can happen amongst politicians. And Paul says, no, we, we didn't do that. And he says, neither did we corrupt. There's false doctrine, unfaithfulness to the word. And the, the idea here, he's saying, he says, we, we, we didn't teach you anything other that was God, than what was God's word. We didn't poison God's word. We didn't water down God's word. We didn't add to or take away from God's word. Because that destroys a fellowship. When you get a church where people take the Bible and they put it to one side, the authority then lies not in the word of God. The authority lies in the leader who basically says, believe it because I say it. Or they'll say, believe it because God says it. But how do you know that God says it? I'm saying it. So it's the same thing. Now, you, you can get authoritarian church leadership like that that takes away or adds to the word of God. David Scott, our, our friend who used to be in uh, Logan St. John's Cross, now up in uh, Inches in Inverness, at the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland yesterday, asked a question. He said, well, we need unity, but what is unity based on? And the convener of the committee, who he was asking, stood up and said, we will never have theological agreement in this church. Never. It's impossible. Our unity is based on a shared vision. Well, for me, that's just a total nightmare. If the unity in this church was to be based on a shared vision, whose vision? My vision? Your vision? I mean, it's just, it, it, it's just an absolute disaster. Bonhoeffer spoke of the tyranny of the visionary. We need, of course we need vision, but the vision comes from the word of God. And we need a unity that is based exactly on theological agreement because theology is about the triune God. It's about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And our unity is to be found in him. The leader has to be faithful to God's word. And not just in the church. So does the husband. So does the father. So does the mother. So does the employer. So does the politician. If you are a Christian, your primary role is to be faithful to God's word. You will then be a better husband, father, mother, employer, or politician. So Paul says, we don't corrupt 
And then he says we don't exploit. And here are the references to making money. We're not greedy. It's very easy to use power and authority to make money and to take advantage in one's greed of other people. Very, very easy to do. Matt Chandler, who's a tremendous preacher and has got this mega church in Texas, uh, was preaching last week and he said, you know, he said, one of the things you have to watch as your church grows, particularly in his context, is that you don't just hang out with millionaires because they can give you lots of things. And the temptation is to do that. And in Paul's day, there were people who thought that godliness was a, a means to make money. And there are people today who exploit the authority they have to make money. So yes, of course, we we read again and again and again of politicians who are in effect taking bribes. Or we read of uh, employers who, who are cheating. Or we read even of Uh, people within families who exploit their family situation in order to make money. And Paul says, no, we don't do that. That's what the narrow-hearted person does. That's what the person who's focused on themselves. They wrong others, they corrupt the word of God, and they exploit other people. But he goes on to talk about what what I would call a broad heart is. First of all, it's forgiving. Now, there's an extraordinary phrase that you see in verse two, uh, sorry, verse four. I have great confidence in you. Right, this was a church that had a gross case of sexual immorality that they didn't deal with, and they should have had to deal with it, and Paul had to tell them to deal with it, and then they did deal with it, and then they went over the top, and then Paul had to go back and say, no, 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 no. And a church that constantly, people within it, constantly slandered him, constantly attacked him, the last thing you expect that he's going to say is, I have confidence in you. Because they'd let him down again and again and again. But he says that, I have great confidence in you. Sometimes when you're in leadership, you have to bear things silently because you want to preserve the unity and the peace of the churches. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, had a great phrase. He always manages to sum things up very succinctly. He said this, fight the devil and love the deacons. Now, in that context, in this congregation, what that means is fight the devil and love the elders. Okay? And I just ask simply, do you do that? Because I think sometimes you fight the elders and love the devil. No, maybe you don't. Maybe you don't go quite that far. But there's a, there's a, you, you understand what I'm saying, that there's a kind of attitude that we have, we just get so riled and so annoyed. When things start to go wrong in in a fellowship, then we, I don't know, there's just something within us. Most of us are either passive fighters, I know that sounds strange, but you know what I mean, the, the, the kind of people who wouldn't say boo to a goose, but boy, can they fight. And then there's the aggressive fighters, the ones who come out with fists flying. And Paul says, no, no, we've got to be forgiving. Now, that's again across the board, not just in the church. When things start to go wrong in a relationship, what's the first thing that happens? You notice everything wrong about the other person. And you start pointing it out. But what we have to do is we are to affirm the good things that we see in one another, not to focus on the negative things. So Paul actually says, I've got great confidence in you. You guys have really screwed up. 
but I have got great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. That's extraordinary. It really is quite extraordinary. And that's because the second thing is that the broad heart is a heart that's very committed to people. Again, look at what he says. You have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. Paul didn't live in Corinth. Paul didn't have a phone. He didn't have internet. He didn't have planes. But he did have a commitment to these people whom he had visited, whom he had been part of and helped plant their church. And he had a great commitment. Now here I think is another problem for us. We all want the love and fruit of great relationships. We want people to love us and to commit themselves to us and everything that goes from that. But we don't want the commitment. And that's the curse of the church, I think, in the the Western world. I mean, what Adam was speaking about. Do you know, I reckon if you go to a prayer meeting and you think, well, pretty high chance that'll end up in jail or end up dead, you're going to be pretty committed to your brothers and sisters. I think we've got a problem because we tend to see church as something that we go to. It tends to be the case that there are a few people who will be very committed and then get burnt out. Now, across the board, I, I speak a lot with different church leaders, and I'm talking about in good evangelical churches. Across the board, I would suggest this, and most of my colleagues would back this up, that in any given congregation, between 25% and a third of the congregation are really committed. And then, and you're talking about membership within. You've got people kind of on the fringes, but you've also got a large number of people who like the church and like what's going on and are happy to be involved and they want the fruit, but the commitment is not there. Paul says, I would live or die with you. That's a very high standard for commitment within the church. Somebody once said to me, David, you expect way too much of people in this church. Okay, Forget about expectations in terms of attending meetings and doing things and all that kind of stuff, which is relatively trivial. Here's the standard of commitment. Would you live and die for your Christian brothers and sisters? That's a, that's a very high standard. And that's what Paul says there. The broad heart is prepared to do that. Third thing is, the broad heart is always open and frank. The devil delights in, in innuendo and in lies. The devil is, is always causing us to use our tongues in a bad way. And Paul didn't do that. He was frank and he was open and he was honest. Now sometimes there is a point, there's a time to be silent, right? Being frank and open and honest does not mean that you walk up to somebody and say, listen, by the way, I can't stand you. You don't go around doing that all the time. Sometimes you, you, you zip your mouth because you need to let things get by. There's a time to be silent. But there's also a time to speak. He talks in Ephesians about speaking the truth in love or almost literally truthing in love. Because it's possible to speak the truth in bitterness and it's possible to be silent in bitterness. And it's possible to gossip and to speak to others in bitterness. Nagging, gossiping, complaining. These are the poison of the tongue. Paul says, no, no, we speak healing words from a healed and forgiving heart. 
But we have to be open and frank, like Paul's letter to the Corinthians. I mean, I watch the assemblies, and I'll I'll listen to the Free Church Assembly, and I pray God that this won't happen at the Free Church Assembly, but it could do. That people stand up, and they live in some kind of fantasy world. They say, well, this is great, and this is great, and this is great. And and you're thinking, oh, no. And on the other hand, you get other people standing up and going saying, we're all doomed, and you're all doomed, and everyone's all rubbish. And that doesn't help either. But what you just want is you want people to be honest and people to face up to things. I know it's a cliche, but tough and tender is what we are to be, open and frank. And then he goes on. He's encouraged. And this is why he's encouraged. When we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. And again, we read over these things, and you just go, yeah, 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 yeah. But isn't this extraordinary? Here is the Apostle Paul, and he's saying, my body was battered, and I had two major sets of issues. One was conflicts on the outside. So for example, just take a chapter like Acts 17. He goes to Thessalonica and a mob is formed from bad characters in the marketplace who cause a riot and they get dragged and arrested and bailed and chased out of town. So they go to Berea and there they're received by people who, Jewish people who love to hear what they're saying from the scriptures. But some of the Jews from Thessalonica come along and and gossip about Paul and say, listen, these guys are trouble. And so they get uh, chased out there as well. Then he goes to Athens. And in Athens he's talking and people say, what's this babbler saying? He's called a babbler. And he gives one of the greatest sermons you'll ever hear. And most people go, no, this is rubbish. We're out of here. And a few people believed. He had great opposition and great trouble. He's greatly disturbed in Athens at the idolatry of the city. Now, you would think if you're getting battered, if there's fierce opposition, that it would discourage you. But Paul says he's greatly encouraged. Well, why? We'll come to that in a moment because notice the other thing. And this is the one that kind of blows my mind. Fears within. You're the Apostle Paul. You know that you're a Christian and you're here, and right now you're very afraid of different things. You're afraid of dying. You're afraid of illness. You're afraid of your marriage breaking up. You're afraid of trouble in the church. You're afraid of, of just different things going on. And you think, I can't say a word because a Christian's not supposed to be afraid. And I just point you to this verse and say, fears within. The Apostle Paul had fears within. And I think what he's doing is he's showing us that our human nature is weak. We are so influenced by external circumstances and inward moods. I can sing, bless the Lord, O my soul, when I'm feeling great and when everything's going well and when there's lots of encouragement and so on. Can I sing, bless the Lord, O my soul, when things are a bit battered? both externally and internally. Look what he says. He says, we get no rest, no relaxation, no relief. We were just, he said, we were just, we were just exhausted. 
And I know this sounds strange. How can you be encouraged by somebody else's fears? And I think the answer is it just shows to me that how human the Bible is and how if you're in that position right now, you're not some kind of backslidden Christian who's wandering way off. You're actually in the heart of reality. You don't want to be there, but that's what happens. He says he's encouraged and comforted. Why? Because, and I think this is great, because I, I imagine Paul, and he's, he's head in hands thinking, Lord, what's going on? Why has this happened? And thinking he sent Titus, and he hadn't heard from Titus, and he hadn't heard back about his letter, and he's greatly distraught by it, and no one can come and say, well, never mind, God's in control, everything's fine. He's really, he's, he's, he's battered. And then he, Titus comes, that's what he says. And he had great re- relief and joy when he met Titus, not just, oh, they haven't killed you, but when Titus tells him how the Corinthians had responded. And that's, again, astounding to me that Paul was so delighted with this, that he was delighted at, at how they responded. He was filled with joy. I love, incidentally, Calvin's comment on this. When he talks about this being battered inwardly and outwardly, he says, hence a most profitable doctrine may be inferred that the more we have been afflicted, so much the greater consolation has been prepared for us by God. Now, I know it's not much comfort if you're going through it, if you're feeling battered. At one level, it's not much comfort. It doesn't inoculate you. But at another level, it's a tremendous comfort. And some of us who have gone through different things can say this, the more we have been afflicted, the greater the consolation that is given by God. And some of that consolation and encouragement comes from a timely visit of a Christian friend, because that's what Paul is saying. That's what took him out of this, was Titus coming. Two other examples. This is again Paul as he comes towards Rome. The brothers there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appia and the three taverns to meet us. In other words, in our terms, they did the equivalent of driving down to London to meet them. They didn't just wait. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. Paul, super saint. He's got the Holy Spirit. He's got Jesus. Why does he need anyone else? He just carries on. No, he delighted at the fact that people actually came to meet him. 2 Timothy 1, 16, may the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. Paul was encouraged when he was in Rome that this man Onesiphorus, who who he had been in his home with, searched hard for him. He didn't know where Paul was, and he found him, and he encouraged him. Now, I think there's an obvious application to that, which we'll come to. But again, what what astounds me in this is the joy that Paul feels. Um, My joy was greater than ever. There's a real joy in fellowship and in having situations resolved. Sometimes there's a joy when you're in a crowd of people gathered for the same purpose. I'm pretty sure that if you were uh, an Arab yesterday, and uh, uh, Adam, I'll explain what an Arab is. Uh, it's not the kind of Arab you'd be used to. Uh, people, there were about 28,000 people in Dundee yesterday who dressed in orange and went off to Celtic Park. Um, and, you know, th- th- there's a joy in, in, in that. 
kind of gets a wee bit disappointing, though. If your team lose, and then people start throwing scarves on the pitch, and people get all moody, and, uh, I mean, I saw lots of police cars and police fans around last night, and just thought, that's kind of sad. You know, I, I mean, Barcelona lost yesterday, and they lost the league uh, to Atletico Madrid, and it was a good thing that at the end, every single person in the Barcelona stadium stood up and applauded um, their, the people who had lost. But we, we kind of mock in football, we kind of mock people who say, you only sing when you're winning. Well, some Christians are like that. We only rejoice, we only sing, we only praise when things are going really, really well. But the real joy in Christianity is not in the winning, if you like, it's in the commitment to one another, the commitment to Christ. And it's such a great thing because Paul here uses a word that doesn't exist. He just makes it up. We have no instance of it anywhere else in the New Testament and no instance of it anywhere else in Greek. He, he wanted to say, I, I, I rejoice, I, but he, he doesn't say that. He says, I have super joy. Why? Because this rebellious church had welcomed Titus, had comforted Titus, had longed for Paul, had shown sorrow for their sin, had ardent concerns and tear for Paul, and, and Paul was just, it was such a great relief. They do care for me. They do care for the gospel. And he's human. See, when people have a go at you, you can kind of be all tough and say, ah, I don't care, I can handle it, I can cope with it. When there's trouble and difficulty in a church, you say, I can handle that, I can cope with it. But no. It's such a relief that a situation that was going wrong, that poison had entered in, that bitterness had entered in, that envy had entered in, is actually dealt with And there is repentance and there is remorse. There is renewal. It brings such great joy. So I think in all of this, we need to think about it this way. Ultimately, Jesus Christ is the great shepherd and pastor. He never corrupts, never wrongs, never exploits. We are to come to him. And as Paul says, we are to make room in our hearts. So as we think about this, as, as you think about the, maybe the narrowness of your own heart and the way that it's constraining you and the way that it's ripping you apart, how do we make room? We had a, I'm extremely grateful to those who came up, a wee squad came up and had, did some garden fellowship, which is a great thing to do. And... Uh, just don't let Tom Courtney loose with a chainsaw. Because we saw, you know, I'll give this a gradual trim, he said. Gradual trim. Don't let him near your hair. If he was a barber, you would be lucky if you got away with your scalp. And, you know, he's just pff, hacking away. Calling, he's like, oh, no, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And then when it's all done, you look at it and you go, wow, there's room. And then our neighbor came in and started planting plants. And it's all colorful and wonderful and delightful. If you're going to make room, you've got to get rid of a lot of the garbage. There's trees that were, were dead, really. There wasn't much there. You trim them down, you get rid of them. There's stuff in our hearts that is stopping us caring for and loving other people. And we've got it as an old, old Puritan word, mortification. Put to death whatever is evil. That's what we need to do. And we need to ask God to help us to do that. So I ask in in a simple way, if you are not a Christian, is there room in your heart for Christ? Ask him. Ask him to cleanse. Ask him to come in. And if you are, like me, a Christian, 
Let me ask you this. Is there room in your heart for me or for the person beside you or for your Christian brother and sister? Or are you struggling? Maybe you think you're the only person who's really, really struggling. Let me tell you this. I think every Christian here is struggling in a different way or will struggle. Perhaps you need to consider how much those around you are struggling and how they could really do with your help. So why not write somebody? Why not visit somebody? Why not invite someone into your home? Why not pray with somebody? Why not apologize to somebody? Why not seek forgiveness? To change the analogy is the inbox of your heart full. Get rid of all the junk mail. Get rid of all the old stuff that's there that you don't need, that's just stored up. Stop archiving it. Make room in your heart. Make room so that you can love people. Take out the idols of the heart. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with Christ. And you will have all the free space for love that you need. I close with this simple prayer from Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. May God bless his word to us. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.